Hello, everyone. I hope you can hear me. We are just getting uh, our speakers lined up here. And so we'll be starting in just a moment. we have some uh, we have our we have our speakers requested so um, things are going to move in a moment here just a second got us all on speaker now. Okay, so little apologies for de the delay. It seems like with these Twitter spaces, there's always just a little bit of delay in the beginning. I think we have uh, our speakers, but I can't see Hugh. Um, so I'm inviting him to speak. And then hopefully Hugh will accept and then we'll be done. In the meantime, let me get, it, get us started. So uh, I just wanna welcome everyone here uh, to this Twitter space. So uh, this Twitter space is going to be looking at Human Rights Watch's New World Report. It's actually our 32nd edition of the World Report. And in it, we look at uh, the human rights situation in about uh, 100 different countries where we work. So I'm just going to uh, mention a few housekeeping details. So First of all, this space uh, is being recorded. Yeah, it is being recorded. I just double checked. It is being recorded. Um, so it should be available uh, for at least a limited time after this ends. Uh, and the second housekeeping detail is just uh, for questions. So at the end, we'll take some questions for the speakers and then um, uh, we'll, we'll sort through those and try to combine them appropriately and, uh, and, and direct them at our speakers. But please uh, send those to us by uh, tweeting at HRW. So um, just put at HRW in your tweet, send out your question there uh, with that, and we should be able to see it and uh, figure it out from that. Okay, so let's get to the substance of this discussion here. So just a little word about how Human Rights Watch usually works. I mean, normally we are day-to-day uh, -day working on um, detailed investigations of human rights abuses around the world, country by country. We have, you know, our researchers are all over the globe and they're really going into the nitty gritty and collecting the details, talking to witnesses and so on. Um, and then once a year, uh, at least, we try to take a step back and Ken Roth, our executive director, tries to take a, a, like a more global look at the trends in, a, in, an, in an essay with this world report. So this world report essay um, this year is called, here's the title, With Autocrats on the Defensive, Can Democrats Rise to the Occasion? So I wanna take the first part of that first uh, with you, Ken, and ask you uh, 
uh, are autocrats really on the defensive today? I mean, I, I've already seen tweets where some people are saying, well, that sounds a little bit uh, too optimistic. Well, Andrew, um, first, thanks for hosting this. Um, and I have to say, when I when I stood back and kind of looked at the world in preparation for writing this year's opening essay, um, I was actually taken aback by what I saw, because I, I knew the conventional wisdom. The conventional wisdom was that autocracy is on the rise, democracy is on the decline. But then when I you know, put myself in the shoes of the autocrats, life looks pretty challenging for them. And, and you see this because there really has been this, you know, foremost, uh, an outpouring of public support for democracy. You pe see people, you know, taking to the streets, demanding an end to autocratic rule in this, you know, broad range of, um, of countries from, from Myanmar, Thailand, Sudan, Uganda, Russia, Belarus, Poland, Cuba, Nicaragua. You know, most recently, we've even seen demands for reform in Kazakhstan before it was hijacked by this, you know, power struggle between the current and the former leaders. So, you know, when you look to what the people want, they want democracy. They don't want autocrats. And, and a new development this past year or so, we've seen the emergence of these interesting, broad alliances where the political parties really spanning left to right have little in common other than their desire to oust the corrupt or autocratic leader. And we saw that, you know, succeed in removing Czech Prime Minister Babich. It got rid of Israeli Prime Minister Netanyahu. I think it's a way to understand the selection of Joe Biden, who was probably nobody's first choice, but was seen as the, the most successful potential candidate against Donald Trump. And today, um, these same kind of broad alliances are challenging the ongoing rule of Hungarian Prime Minister Orban and Turkish President Erdogan. And so, you know, in response to this, you know, kind of increasingly um, visible and effective opposition to autocratic rule, we see autocrats resorting to increasing repression. You know, traditionally, they might have relied on manipulated elections to preserve power because that's a, a way of at least gaining some credibility, some legitimacy from an electoral charade. But but um, today, the elections they're holding don't even pretend to be credible. They're zombie elections. And you saw that in, in Hong Kong, in Nicaragua, Belarus, Russia, Uganda, Iran. And while you could say, oh, this is just, you know, strong men being strong, um, in fact, these are acts of desperation. Um, any autocrat would much prefer the legitimacy that comes from even a compromised election. But these autocrats have lost, you know, any prospect of public support. And so they've got to resort to these totally sham elections. So, you know, all of this adds up to a, a pretty dismal horizon for autocrats. It doesn't mean they're going to disappear tomorrow, but they are definitely pushing against the wind. And this idea that, you know, these these uh, actions that autocrats take are really evidence of their weakness, not their strength, as, as they would have it. Um, what are the, can you take one or two examples of that, that from the last year that, that you think probably, you know, maybe demonstrates that best? Well, I think maybe the best example is Myanmar, where, you know, it was really just about a year ago, there was a military coup. And, you know, the traditional wisdom would have you believe that that's the end of the story. The the Myanmar military has all the arms, the people don't, um, you know, they'll just rule. But in fact, there's been this massive outpouring of support for democracy, this, this huge civil disobedience movement, which has basically shut down the economy. Um, it's even creating kind of alternative um, 
hospitals, you know, alternative forms of, of, of basic public services, um, increasingly is turning violent, I am sad to say. I mean, at first it was, um, you know, big peaceful protests. The army responded by, by shooting people. They killed some, over 1,400 protesters. And so today you're seeing, you know, many of those protesters joining the long-term ethnic insurgencies on the periphery of Myanmar. But, you know, essentially the junta has virtually zero support at home. It's facing growing international pressure through the form of sanctions and political ostracization. Um, it's pretty bleak and there's no end in sight. So, you know, yes, the, the junta has the guns, but they're being squeezed politically, economically, and there's, there's you know, little to prop them up for the long term. And, you know, variations on that theme emerge almost any place where governments resort to sheer force rather than public consent to try to stay in power. Hmm. And so, I mean, that, you, you mentioned with Myanmar the, the international reaction. So that kind of brings us to the other half of uh, of the question that is the title of your essay. Uh, and that is, what... Um, how, did, how does the rest of the world rise to the occasion? Most specifically, how do demo, countries that are more democratic um, or like to think of themselves, uh, leaders that like to think of themselves as, as democratic leaders, how do they respond? How, how have they not been responding? What do they need to do? What do we need to see from them in 2022? Well, even though autocrats are struggling, that's no reason for complacency. Uh, we can't have any confidence that democracy is going to prevail if democratic leaders don't do better. You know, it's not enough to just point out the failings of the autocrats. Democracies themselves have to deliver too. Um, and let me stress two things. I mean, one is that we are facing enormous global problems today. And whether that's the pandemic or climate change, poverty and inequality, you know, racial injustice, the threats from modern technology, you know, these are big problems. But today's democratic leaders are often, you know, so mired in short-term partisan battles, you know, so handcuffed by complicated coalitions and narrow majorities that they just are not addressing these problems effectively. Um, they are, you know, they're more answerable to their people, they're responsive to the electorate, but they're not rising to the occasion. And I, I think that democracy just has to deliver better on its promised dividends. And what that's going to require is more visionary leadership um, of the sort that is required to meet these major problems. Um, and yes, there are you know, constraints, but we're not even seeing the visionary rhetoric, the, the attempts to pull the public and, and, and other political parties along. So that's been a, a real failing so far, which, which worries me because if democratic leaders breed frustration and despair, that's going to give the autocrats a second chance. Now, the other element that's worth stressing is that um, democratic leaders need to be more consistent in their support for democracy and human rights abroad. Um, you know, we're all relieved that we no longer have a president in the White House who is embracing every friendly autocrat under the sun. But Biden's promise of a foreign policy that has, is, has human rights central to it just hasn't been fulfilled. Um, leaving aside China, where there has been an evolution in U.S. policy, most of Biden's foreign policy isn't that different from conventional U.S. foreign policy before Trump. And so we still see the blatant double standards. And the ones that I would highlight in particular are, you know, repressive governments in Egypt, Saudi Arabia, United Arab Emirates, Israel, the increasingly Hindu nationalist repression of, of Modi in India. All of these governments are basically getting a buy. You know, some of them are still getting arms sold to them. Many are getting military support. Um, that is a blatant double standard, a blatant gap 
in, in the supposed Western support for democracy, that inevitably undermines the credibility of the Western effort and makes it more difficult for them for Democrats to prevail in this contest with autocracy. Oh, thanks for that, Ken. Um, from the perspective here in Brussels, uh, I mean, the EU, uh, we say this in our world report, the EU has been um, very good on words uh, and not so much when it comes to the follow through uh, as well. So I would encourage people to look at the individual chapters uh, of our world report uh, to get more into the detail and to start getting into the detail a little bit more uh, here in this space. Um, I want to turn now to our deputy director uh, of our Africa division, Ida Sawyer. Um, and Ida, if you could sort of start to drill down for us a little bit. Ken's had this, the, the global um, uh, overview, and I want to start looking at uh, Sub-Saharan Africa now. And um, what are we highlighting in Africa in this year's World Report? Thanks, Andrew, and hi, everyone. I'll focus on two overarching themes that have really stood out in our work on Sub-Saharan Africa over the past year. And this includes first attacks on civilians and other abuses continue committed during armed conflicts and the need for greater efforts to hold those responsible for these abuses to account. And second, the human rights implications of unconstitutional takeovers and other political upheaval that we've seen in numerous country contexts. So first on armed conflicts, much of our focus has been on Ethiopia, where over one year into the conflict that began in the Tigray region, the consequences have been devastating for civilians throughout northern Ethiopia and beyond, and the risks for the broader Horn of Africa region cannot be understated. We've documented how government forces and their allies, including forces from neighboring Eritrea, committed large-scale massacres, widespread sexual violence, forced displacement, indiscriminate shelling, pillage, and attacks in schools and hospitals during the conflict's first nine months in the Tigray region. Then from July, as the conflict spread into the Amara and Afar regions, Tigrayan forces were also implicated in serious abuses, including summary executions against Amara civilians and alleged rape cases. For over six months now, the government has imposed an effective siege on Tigray, blocking virtually all humanitarian aid from reaching the region and preventing millions of people from accessing food, medicine, cash, and fuel. This amounts to clear violations of international humanitarian law, including possibly the war crime of using starvation as a weapon of war. We were encouraged by the UN Human Rights Council's decision in December to deploy an international commission of human rights experts on Ethiopia, which could pave the way for accountability. Now it needs to be set up and start its important work, but much more also needs to be done to put pressure on the Ethiopian government to immediately end the siege on Tigray and to pressure all sides to end the atrocities, especially as reports of airstrikes and forcible displacement of civilians continue. Elsewhere, we've documented horrific attacks on civilians by armed Islamist groups in almost every region of Sub-Saharan Africa, from the Sahel and the Lake Chad region to the Democratic Republic of Congo, Somalia, and Mozambique. And in many cases, we've seen how abuses perpetrated by government forces during counterterrorism operations against these groups and near total impunity for past crimes have undermined confidence in the state and fueled recruitment efforts by the armed Islamist groups. In Congo, the government's imposition of military rule to address insecurity in the East has not improved civilian protection, 
Officers with records of abuse remain in command positions, while attacks on civilians by both armed groups and government forces have continued. Just since the so-called state of siege began last May, over 1,600 civilians were killed in North Kivunachari provinces alone. In each of these contexts, systemic reforms to ensure accountability for serious crimes will be critical for ending the cycles of violence and abuse. So moving to the second theme, the past year has in many ways been bleak for democracy across sub-Saharan Africa. We saw four military coups, including in Mali, Chad, Guinea, and Sudan, and other countries incumbents have clung to power through manipulation of their country's constitutions and elections that were neither credible nor fair, such as in Uganda and the Republic of Congo. We've also seen violent repression against activists, protesters, journalists, and the political opposition in numerous other countries, including Burundi, the Democratic Republic of Congo, Eswatini, Rwanda, and Senegal. Yet, despite this negative trend, there were a few glimmers of hope and signals that democracy will prevail in the long term, as Ken alluded to in his global overview. In Zambia, the incumbent president reluctantly relinquished power following his overwhelming defeat in the August election, due in part to a strong electoral observation mission and parallel vote tabulation. Niger saw its first ever democratic transition of power after the former president chose to step down after the end of his second term, although progress there was marred by allegations of election irregularities. Much of the repression that we've seen across the continent, and in some cases the military coups, has been a direct response to bolder, sustained demands from African citizens insisting that their basic rights be respected. We've seen this with Sudan's brave pro-democracy activists who have proven their resilience. They were the force that led to al-Bashir's ouster in 2019, and despite the recent coup and defiance of the transition's military leaders, the activists are still on the streets and they're not giving up. We've also seen this through the work of Congolese whistleblowers and anti-corruption activists who helped expose how former President Kabila used the presidency, a bank run by his brother, and a web of shell companies to amass a fortune, while Congo's population remained one of the poorest in the world. And we've seen the resilience of the justice systems in Kenya, Malawi, and South Africa, where former President Zuma is facing corruption, fraud, and money laundering charges and serves jail time for defying a constitutional court order to testify. The West Africa sub-regional body ECOWAS has also taken bold steps in defense of rights and democracy, including through calls from the ECOWAS chair and the ECOWAS parliament for the bloc to ban third-term bids and other political maneuvering to evade constitutional term limits. And just this past weekend, ECOWAS announced tough new sanctions on Mali after the transitional authorities there proposed holding elections in 2025 instead of next month as originally agreed. So in the coming years, I think we're likely to see Africa's young population turning increasingly to multifaceted and innovative forms of protest, including through continued peaceful demonstrations, mobilization on social media, revelations from whistleblowers, activism through art and music, and pan-African cross-border solidarity among different youth movements. And in order to counter the repressive tendencies of many of the continent's leaders, we would urge Africa's regional and international partners committed to human rights and democracy to demonstrate their full support for these courageous activists. Thank you. 
Uh, Ida, thank you so much for that overview. That is a lot to take in in a wide region. I have ton, a ton of questions, uh, but I want to go to Hugh Williamson uh, to uh, take a different region uh, and do something similar. Look at the what we're highlighting in Europe and Central Asia. So Hugh is the director of our Europe and Central Asia division. Hugh, could you uh, could you tell us what you're highlighting in this year's World Report? Sure, Andrew. Uh, can you hear me properly? Yes, yes, all good, all good. Good, good, good. Uh, thanks for thanks for this and, and um, enjoying the the space so far. Yeah, I was going to also focus on two themes down on ordinary people's rights in authoritarian governments, and the other one is on uh, human rights challenges in Europe. And I was also going to mention a, a positive note at the end as well. Um, in terms of the first theme, I mean, Ken at the beginning. You know, talked about increasing repression of the autocrats as they come more under pressure. So, in a sense, our work in my team has been on documenting that that increased repression. And in a way, I'm going to give you a quick sort of whirlwind tour of some of the abuses we've documented over the last year. Ken mentioned Kazakhstan right at the top, and obviously that's worth mentioning because it's so much in the news at the moment. I mean, these have been chaotic and bloody days of protests and violence in in Kazakhstan. Um, can't go into much detail, but obviously with hundreds dead and 10,000 in detention, we really are calling on the Kazakhstan authorities to to look into investigate what's happened and to, to bring those to account for for such a huge loss of life and, and, and giving access to lawyers for those in detention, for instance. If we look at Russia... This has been an awful year for human rights in Russia. And I would just mention two things. I mean, bookmarking the year, as it were, the, the detention and jailing of Alexei Navalny, the uh, opposition figure at the beginning of the year, and the b banning of Memorial, the leading human rights organization at the end of the year. Um, if we look at Belarus, I mean, 2020 was the year of the, 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 the falsified presidential election. 2021 was very much the effort by the authorities to, to to completely silent the voices of all critics. And there was a particularly harsh and brutal crackdown on non-governmental organizations and human rights groups. I just thought I'd give you one number to, to, to think about. There were um, efforts on the authorities' part to shut down 278 non-governmental organizations. Um, that's a very big number for a modest-sized country. And that pretty much means the end of all independent civil society in Belarus. So that's something worth thinking about. Um, in Azerbaijan, a country was not so much in the headlines this year, but nevertheless uh, an important country in the region and sadly one where an authoritarian government is still in power. We did see the release of some political prisoners or some people jailed on politically motivated charges, but also dozens and dozens remain in prison. And we've also documented... Uh, serious examples of torture in detention, both last year and evidence that came to light during last year of previous bouts of, of torture in detention. And of course, we have to mention Turkey in this context as well as authoritarian governments. We're saying this year that the, the, the really severe crackdown on human rights in, in Turkey by the uh, President Erdogan-led government has set back the rights protection in the country by decades and I would emphasize one emblematic um, step that the government took this year in that context, and that was withdrawing from the what's called the Istanbul Convention, which is a Council of Europe convention 
the most important one uh, covering the protection of girls and women from domestic violence. And that was a, a terrible decision by the government, really sets back work on that important issue in the country. Um, and before I move on, I want to just mention Ukraine as well. It doesn't fit into this authoritarian camp, but it's in that region very much. And it's obviously in the headlines significantly at the moment um, because of the Russian troop buildup on the Ukrainian border. But we don't talk so much about the human rights situation in the east of the country. And we're just worth flagging what we've documented there. Um, real threats to civilians in the region, security threats, but also threats to to their livelihoods and their and their um, access to to food, to schools, but also blocks on healthcare, pension access, and so on. So there's real suffering going on in eastern Ukraine. Um, so that's worth highlighting as well. In terms of my second theme about the human rights challenges in Europe, I would focus on two areas. The first one is um, the rights of migrants and asylum seekers in the region. Um, there's still a massive gap between the, the rhetoric and the reality of, of the European Union on this issue. We, he we hear nice words, but the, the reality is something very different. Um, the catastrophe that's happened on the border, or is happening on the border between Poland and Belarus, is obviously the, the leading awful example of that. Um, you know, several, several people have died at that border, continued suffering there. Uh, we documented this in a major report at the end of last year. Um, of course, Belarus has a responsibility for this, but Poland does too. And Poland um, should be um, protecting the people coming across the border rather than pushing them back. And also should be allowing humanitarian access to that border area. But it's not just Poland. And that's the point that have been doing these so-called pushbacks, these unlawful returns of people who are coming across the border potentially applying for asylum and governments pushing them back to where they've come from. We compiled a whole list of countries that have done that, of EU member states that have done that this year. I would call it almost a sort of list of shame, really. I just wanted to mention the countries on that list. Croatia, Greece, Cyprus, Hungary, Slovenia, Spain, Lithuania, Latvia and Poland. So all those countries have, have um, ignored EU standards, let alone international human rights standards on refugee protection. In terms of the second area within Europe, I would focus on, you know, abuses of, of rule of law uh, rules by Hungary and Poland. You know, this is a long going issue, but it continued and was stepped up in many ways in 2021. Hungary, for instance, misused um, a state of emergency imposed because of COVID regulations to put heavy restrictions on protests, on information gathering and on the media. While Poland stepped up its, its efforts to control the independence of the judiciary um, and had major conflicts with, EU, with the EU on that issue. And in both countries, there's been attacks on um, LGBT groups and other groups and minority groups as well. Um, I would say that the, our view is that the response from the European Union, and that's an important focus of where we put our uh, efforts, has been mixed. Um, and there's been some good responses as well as responses which have not gone as far as we think they should be doing regarding Hungary and Poland. And the good responses, for instance, some, some rulings by the, the European Court of Justice during the year. And before I finish, I wanted to also finish on a more positive note. 
Um, and a really a shout out and a sort of a, an expression of solidarity with the human rights defenders, the activists, the ordinary people who've been standing up for human rights protection um, during the year across this region. If we think of the protesters out on the streets in their tens and hundreds of thousands at the beginning of the year in Russia regarding the um, detention of uh, and, and imprisonment of Navalny. We think about the protesters in Kazakhstan at the beginning of this month just standing up for their, their ordinary rights over energy price protests and so on. Let's think about the NGO activists in, in Belarus who have, as I said, were so much under pressure, many of them in jail now as well, many NGO leaders in jail in Belarus. Let's think about the women activists on the streets of Istanbul uh, in March and April when the decision was announced to, to ban and to, to withdraw from the Istanbul Convention on Domestic Violence. Let's think also about the women in Poland who've been out on the streets protesting about increasingly strict abortion rules in the country. And of course, the refugee activists, finally, who've been saving lives at borders and at sea um, in our region during the year. So it's important to really remember the courageous activities that keep these human rights issues on the front, on the front pages and on the front line. Thanks, Andrew. Thanks for that, Hugh. Thanks for ending um, on, a, on a positive note. I often get asked uh, by people, especially on Twitter, what they can do on uh, some of these issues that we deal with. And supporting these activists uh, who are really on the front lines is one thing uh, people can certainly do. Um, I want to turn now, we're going to drill down even further and look at um, one country, the UK in particular, um, there uh, are a number of people I can see in the group. We have well over a thousand uh, people listening right now. And uh, I see many people from the UK. And so I, I turn now to Yasmin Ahmed, who is uh, our UK director, to ask her a little bit about what uh, we're highlighting in the UK specifically, just to, to, to fill us in on that, please. Thank you. Uh, Yasmin, the floor is yours. Thanks, Andrew, and lovely to be here with everyone and my fellow panellists. I think in the UK what we're seeing is a really worrying trend, which is not isolated to the UK, which we've heard from Ken and others um, saying that, essentially is that really the fundamental point is that democracies, which are the bastions against this slip into autocracy, are not doing enough. And they're not doing enough on two levels. And so essentially the first level being what are they doing on the international stage in their foreign policy? Now, you know, it has to be said and acknowledged that the UK government has and continues to do some important work. Um, they've done really important work and um, important action in relation to China at the Human Rights Council and elsewhere in terms of accountability for what's happening in Xinjiang, uh, what's happening in Hong Kong and elsewhere. But what we do see, unfortunately, is that when human rights um, comes up against and rubs up against other interests like national security or other interests like uh, trade um, and the economy, we often see, which I think and I think Human Rights Watch sees as an incorrect balance, really, that they prioritise these other interests. And certainly what we would say was that human rights are, in fact, essential for all other interests to, to, to flourish in any event. But we see that, for example, in the continued sale of weapons to Saudi Arabia that are used in the war in Yemen, which, as we know, have killed 
thousands of civilians. Um, we see it as well in the UK government sending troops to Poland to assist in reinforcing the border fence with Belarus, where, as we know and, and Hugh has talked about, people are being pushed back into conditions which amount to inhumane and degrading treatment. People are losing their lives as well. Uh, we see the UK government voting against a commission of inquiry into the conflict in the occupied Palestinian territories and Israel. And also, and I think really, really worryingly, we see the UK government cutting foreign aid, its foreign aid budget, which really does, is essential in terms of supporting human rights, civil society and democracy globally. I think we're also seeing in this kind of post-Brexit world in the UK, the UK government's really standing up and promoting the idea that they are global Britain. And with that, and with their um, various reviews that they have done, they talk about human rights um, and democracy being a priority. But then when we see uh, them reinstating trade preferences with Cambodia and countries like that without any consideration of the continuing human rights violations. Uh, it's very concerning. And I think then we then turn, so we that, that's really the first point to say that, you know, a lot of these established democracies that are at the forefront of uh, the fight against autocracy, which is can be nothing other than described as an existential threat to the world, I would say, and, and, and certainly is what is set out in Ken's essay. But then I think very worryingly, we are seeing what's happening internally in the United Kingdom. Now, what we've heard from Ida and Hugh and Ken is these trends in, in countries where autocracy is embedded or on the rise. And what are they? They're the closing of civic space. They're the restraint of oversight of executive power. They're the demonising of minorities or migrants. They're the fundamental undermining of human rights protections and frameworks. And unfortunately, as we speak, these are the very things that are happening in the United Kingdom. We have a bill going through Parliament which would criminalise protest in, in certain circumstances. We have a bill going through Parliament which would restrain the ability of people to challenge executive action. We have the government who have refused to allow parliamentary oversight proper parliamentary oversight of trade deals, uh, as happens routinely in other countries. Uh, we have the Nationalities and Borders Bill, uh, which essentially, and I think it is, is it, it is not too um, overblown to say it essentially disassembles the architecture of protection that has been established since the Second World War and the Holocaust, it disassembles that in one bill. It provides for a differentiation of treatment. It criminalises people who arrive here. It uh, proposes offshoring, like has happened in Australia. It provides for pushbacks. And it also provides for the deprivation of, of, of citizenship in circumstances where people haven't been provided a notice that that is going to happen, essentially essentially scuppering their rights to challenge that. And just to, uh, when we think that not enough has been done to undermine the fundamental democratic rights and architecture in the UK, the government have just come out now with a review of the actual Human Rights Act um, itself, which embeds the fundamental human rights in 
the U- in UK law. So I think really what we're seeing in the UK is a very, very worrying trend where those countries which we would hope would be the bulwark against this trend are not only acting inconsistently internationally but are also undermining democratic rights internally. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for that, Yasmin. Um, we're going to take some questions in a moment. Uh, for people who have questions for Ken or Ida, Hugh or Yasmin, um, on uh, any of the subjects really in our, in our world report, we'll try, to, uh, we'll try to answer. And if we can't, we'll direct you to some of our other experts around uh, the organization. Um, just to, uh, send a tweet at HRW and then your question, we'll see them there. Uh, we've had some questions come in already. Just before we turn to those questions, I want to mention one thing, which is uh, another huge piece of news today, um, and it's uh, out of Germany. So a former Syrian intelligence officer has been convicted for crimes against humanity by a German court this morning. Um, It's really a groundbreaking step. I can't really, it's hard to describe how huge this is for, uh, towards justice for serious crimes in Syria, and an important example of uh, so-called, uh, what's called universal jurisdiction uh, in these kinds of cases. Um, we are going to dedicate an entire uh, Twitter space to this subject later today. So if you are finding this uh, this discussion interesting and you want to dig down even further into one particular case uh, and, and uh, examine uh, how this uh, case came about, uh, what the trial, how the trial happened, uh, and what the verdict was, and, and the sentencing this uh, this morning. This Twitter space will be on uh, this same channel uh, at uh, 17:30 CET, uh, so that's 5:30 PM Central European Time and UK time. That is 4:30 in the afternoon. So please join us for that. So I want to turn to uh, questions now. We have a we have a a question from Tahmina, uh, uh, and this is this concerns uh, Afghanistan. Um, so the question, um, I think maybe Ken, you, you could take this. It's about the uh, the global approach to Afghanistan, sanctions imposed on Afghanistan, and um, the humanitarian crisis, uh, which is overwhelming uh, in Afghanistan right now. Um, could you uh, just uh, tease out our uh, what we've been saying on that uh, and and uh, how we're we're looking at uh, the humanitarian crisis there. Um, sure, Andrew. I, I mean, let me just preface it by saying that you know Human Rights Watch has been very dedicated to reporting on the the quite serious abuses being committed by the Taliban. You know, if if you listen to Taliban spokesmen, um, they're pretending that this is Taliban 2.0. You know, the new and improved Taliban. But in fact, it looks an awful lot like Taliban 1.0. Um, you know, they claim that that girls can go to secondary school. In fact, that's happening very little. They claim that women can go to university, you know, barely at all. They've been summarily executing people associated with the former government, even though they, they, they claim that wouldn't happen. So there are enormous problems with respect to women's rights, with respect to the the rights of, of journalists, civic activists, and, and just, you know, ordinary Afghan people. So we are very focused on that. Um, that said, the international community's response has is visiting devastation on the country. And the issue is not, you know, do you give financial support to the Taliban? Nobody's arguing for that. But we have to recognize, you know, first, the Afghan government, the prior government, was almost wholly dependent 
on international assistance. And so when that suddenly stopped, there was nobody to pay the teachers. There was nobody to pay the healthcare workers. And so, um, you know, as the UN has appealed for, there is a need for, you know, basic funds to be directed, ideally directly, you know, directly to the, the the people who are providing these necessary services, or or via the UN or via the NGOs. It doesn't mean funding the Taliban, but um, we can't just sort of ignore the um, dependence of these basic services on international assistance. But there's also something. Um, really more fundamental here, which is that um, because of the um, basically continuation of terrorism restrictions um, and the seizure of um, the the cent- Afghan central bank's assets in the United States, um, suddenly there is what's called a liquidity crisis. That is, there's literally not enough physical cash around, not dollar bills, not Afghan uh, Afghanis, the, the local currency. And, and the result is that even though there is food in the markets, um, people literally don't have cash to buy it. They go to the bank, they might have money theoretically in the bank, there's no cash to withdraw. And, and the answer to that is really, um, you know, largely lies with the U.S. Treasury Department and, and, and similar entities in the West, where they have to allow the Afghan Central Bank access to its funds so it can, you know, literally buy dollars and have those brought to Afghanistan so that the economy can be revived. This is not a matter of funding the the Taliban. This is a matter of avoiding um, complete implosion of the Afghan economy with, you know, enormous starvation and devastation that is on the immediate horizon if urgent action isn't taken. Thanks. Thanks uh, for that answer, Ken. Uh, Taliban 2.0 is the same as Taliban 1.0, which is a big zero uh, in human rights terms. Um, Ken, we have a, a, another couple of questions coming through. Um, uh, I know you're you're in a rush. You're about to uh, do another uh, interview um, uh, very soon, but there's a, a number of people uh, talking about the uh, UN Human Rights Council and uh, the presence on the human rights. The, UN Human Rights Council of certain countries that, um, let's say, uh, to put it mildly, do not exactly have stellar records uh, on respecting human rights. Um, how do you see that? Having you know, you've been dealing with the UN Human Rights Council for for many many years and, and understand it very well. How do how, how do you think about that? Well, look, I, I certainly wish that the likes of Eritrea, Russia, Saudi Arabia, etc., were not um, on the Human Rights Council. Cuba, China. Um, there's a reason for that. Um, when the Human Rights Council was created, um, every seat was supposed to be contested. There was supposed to be an election before the UN General Assembly, which would provide the opportunity to vote out such highly abusive governments. What's happened, though, um, for the first few years that actually happened, um, every year the, the worst offender was was excluded. But governments got wise and they began gaming the system. So most regions these days propose only the same number of candidates as there are open seats, in essence, depriving the General Assembly of the ability to reject awful candidates. Um, and so the blame for this lies with the governments of the world. They, they don't like to you know, have to compete. Even the West puts forward one of these closed slates because they don't want to bother competing. And so we need to change that um, selection procedure and go back to the original idea of, of contested elections. Now, that said, you know, some governments, and particularly the Israeli government, like to say, oh, we can just ignore the Human Rights Council because um, it has some bad actors on it. That's completely not true. And indeed, um, at this moment, when the UN Security Council is stymied by, by the veto, the UN Human Rights Council has emerged as by far and away the most effective 
um, multilateral tool for addressing human rights violations. And um, most recently, we saw it hold a special session on, on Ethiopia because of the crisis in Tigray. And despite vehement opposition by the Ethiopian government, um, it succeeded in mounting a very powerful investigative and monitoring procedure and a mechanism. And, and we've seen you know, similar responses to Afghanistan, to Myanmar. I mean, this is the place where it happens. It's the only place within the UN system where these kinds of effective responses are mounted. Now, there has been one recent failure. Um, after about four years of, of close, powerful scrutiny of war crimes in Yemen, the Saudis used a combination of threats and bribes to end, the sanction, this, end that oversight a few months ago. And so we've called on the UN General Assembly to step in and revive that, that um, oversight mechanism. But apart from that one recent failure, the Human Rights Council has been a rather effective way to address these things. It's all that we have. And so those who disparage it just because there are a few bad actors on it, ignore its very useful and effective record in addressing some of the world's worst atrocities. There are still gaps. It hasn't yet addressed China's crimes against humanity in Xinjiang. It hasn't yet addressed um, the Egyptian government's most severe repression in Egypt's modern history. Um, it hasn't yet addressed Saudi behavior at home, for that matter. Um, so there are gaps, but it still is a very effective tool frequently for addressing the world's most serious human rights problems. Thanks so much for that, Ken. That's a, that's a great answer to a question um, I, I get asked fairly frequently. Um, Ken, I realize uh, you now uh, are right up against uh, the time when you have to uh, jump on another interview, uh, I believe, with uh, a South African that's uh, media outlet. Um, so uh, thank you very much, uh, Ken, for joining us. Uh, I think uh, I, I'm seeing um, like no, I see one other question about um, positive uh about positive reporting of human rights progress. I think Ida and and um, and Hugh uh, and Yasmin all, all had some examples of uh, you know positive uh, stories that are more positive from the last year. But I don't know if, if Ida uh, and, and Hugh and Yasmin uh, Ida, do you want to take it first? Do you want to come? Do you, do you want to emphasize maybe take take one or two things that you saw as positive or reinforce those? Sure. Thanks, Andrew. Um, so I think, you know, we have seen these these pushbacks against um, the authoritative repressive leaders uh, in Africa, which I mentioned earlier as, as being positive. And we've also seen some you know, small but important steps on justice and accountability. In the Central African Republic, for example, the, the special criminal court there, um, which is mixed uh, international and Central African, investigating, prosecuting serious crimes committed during the conflict there over the past many years. And just in December, they announced that they're sending uh, its first case to trial. So that's, that's a positive move. Um, We've also seen in, in the Gambia, their Truth Commission uh, published their, their fi final findings and called for investigations into senior officials responsible for the Jamey era crimes, uh, which could pave the way for accountability there. So we, we are you know, seeing that slowly, it often takes much longer than we and activists and victims would like, um, but there is progress towards justice and accountability for these serious crimes. And we hope that these small but important steps will serve a deterrent effect and help send a message that there are consequences for these crimes and, and help to stop stop these cycles of violence and abuse. Thanks so much, Ida. Hugh, do you want to jump in? 
Yeah, sure. I mean, a, a couple of quite quite distinctly different sort of areas of progress. One, a country we've not talked about yet in Kyrgyzstan in Central Asia. Um, 2020, there was the death of a, of a human rights defender, uh, well-known in the region, Azim John Askarov. Uh, in 2021, the government, under pressure, um, decided to, to open a, a proper investigation of how he died in prison. And that's an important step for, for human rights defenders in the region. We hope the government will really do a genuine investigation of that. On a much bigger sort of scale, um, we haven't mentioned, we haven't talked about climate or climate change, the environment much on this call, but the European Commission made an important step in July, as we may recall, you know, achieve, with plans to proposals to achieve climate neutrality by 2050, a really important um, target for the whole block. And we haven't talked much about um, business and human rights either, but there was some good progress on that issue this year, last year. A new law was passed in Germany um, on um, obliging companies to disclose information about human rights risks, as it's called, in their supply chains internationally around the world. And similarly, at the EU level, at the EU level, there was some progress on on having EU-wide legislation on getting companies to be more transparent and more human rights um, you know, friendly, as it were, about the human rights conditions in which their products are produced in Asia and elsewhere. So those are some areas of progress. Okay, excellent. Thank you, Hugh, for that. And uh, Yasmin, do you want to uh, jump in? Yeah, sure. Um, I think it's a really good and important question because especially for us at Human Rights Watch, we spend our life, um, you know, uh, challenging some of these abuses. And obviously, there will always be more to be done. Uh, but it is also good to reflect on the work that we and many others are doing and think about the progress we have made or where there are small cracks that continue to be important to open up. So I think really just just um, sort of following on from Ida and Hugh, thinking about also really today is a really important day with the Koblenz trial in Germany to talk about victory. We have, you know, after years of fighting in Syria uh, with some of the most significant brutality that we've seen against civilians, and today we have a guilty verdict for someone who was part of the Syrian uh, intelligence services for crimes against humanity in Germany, this persecution happened. We have thought for many, many years and scratched our heads and thought, how can accountability happen? It's blocked at the Security Council, um, the ICC. We are thinking about what might happen. And we were one of the organisations that were was involved with the establishment of the uh, the the mechanism which established uh, which sits in Geneva, which you know uh, takes in evidence and which was critical for this trial. And so, really, today is an important day to think about accountability for international crimes and the fact that whilst this is only one individual, the fact that all those in Syria today and in the past who have committed crimes will not and cannot think that they will be free forever, that there is accountability and that there is, we are we are continuing to fight against impunity. Um, I think those important 
things that you know have happened beyond human rights organisations per se, but we've seen movements that have been built over the last decade. We've seen the Me Too movement, which is dealing with uh, you know harassment and and violence against women. And this is not only about a few people, but this is really a a grassroots movement of women saying no longer. We've seen the incredible um, work. In, within the Black Lives Matter movement, where where people are saying no longer will we accept this kind of treatment, that racism will not be acceptable. So we're seeing that there's a galvanization of power and of of challenge that are coming is coming through many different ways. Um, uh, in relation to that, with Black Lives Matter and racism, we saw the Human Rights Council last year establish a mechanism which will look into systemic racism against people of African descent. Uh, we have seen countries be willing to to challenge China, which which we all have been pushing for, but weren't sure that they would do. But we have seen that in many different forums, including the United Kingdom, which has been really at the forefront of doing that in the Human Rights Council and elsewhere. Uh, with Ethiopia, we've seen a, a conflict which has seen intractable, where we have watched, you know, civilians being killed and the treatment of people being, you know, that has been appalling. We've seen a humanitarian blockade, which in itself is a massive catastrophe. But we saw the Human Rights Council and states rise to the challenge and establish an important investigative mechanism and saying that we will not stand silent, despite Ethiopia and others trying to block those movements. So I think, uh, and then finally, I would just add finally, that you know, we have the Beijing Olympics coming up. And obviously, for many, we know that the kind of repression that's happening within China and the fact that this is an opportunity for China to sports wash its reputation. But we've seen the world, the Women's Sporting Federation and others standing up and saying, we're not going to accept behaviour like this. And I think we're seeing, as, as Hugh said, we're seeing other actors like sporting organisations, like corporations, who are also part of this fight and critical to this fight. So I think there are there is uh, much to be positive about. There is much work to be done. And, and you know, I, I know that myself and my colleagues within Human Rights Watch stand ready to continue that fight um, and continue to sort of work with all of you to do that. Thank you so much, Yasmin. That was a really powerful way to end that. And Ida, Hugh, Yasmin, thank you uh, so much for joining the, uh, joining this Twitter space today and giving us your opinions. Uh, just re-emphasize that uh, you know, if you are looking for a positive story on human rights and justice finally being delivered, um, today is a day that is happening. And you can listen to more about what's happened in Germany, in Koblenz with this trial of this uh, former Syrian uh, intelligence official uh, on a um, Twitter space right here on this same channel at HRW at uh, 1730 CET, uh, that's 530 uh, CET and uh, in UK 4.30. So uh, I just want to thank everyone for listening. We had something like uh, well, I mean, well over 1,000, 1,300 um, listeners today. I really thank you for your interest in the World Report, for your interest in these things. I know we didn't get to all the questions. We had a lot of questions on individual countries. I would seriously encourage people to look at the World Report online. It is a huge, thick uh, uh, book or <laughs> thick set of pixels and PDF, if you will. And we cover so many countries in there and people 
people wanted wanted us to talk about Iran. People wanted to talk uh, us to talk more about uh, Pakistan or India. Um, they're all there. They are all there in the World Report. Please have a look at those uh, countries and uh, Ken's essay. Read the whole thing and understand the argument uh, that we're trying to make. Thank you so much, um, and we'll see you again in a few hours. Bye bye.